0: The night before Jesus was put to death on a cross, we find the following words that Jesus spoke to his disciples in verse number 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. This is a statement, a commandment we find throughout the scripture spoken to God's people. In the Old Testament, beginning with the patriarchs, to Abraham in Genesis 15, do not be afraid, I am your shield, your very great reward. And then to his son Isaac later on, and then to Jacob. Even to Moses, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, as they prepare to face Og, the king of Bashan, God tells him, do not be afraid. Jeremiah is told, do not be afraid of their faces, because God had called him to be a prophet. In the New Testament, beginning with Mary, when the archangel appeared to her and told her, Do not be afraid. To the disciples here in our passage before the crucifixion, but also to the disciples after the crucifixion and after the resurrection in Matthew 28. Then even to the Apostle Paul, whom we do not normally think of as someone who was afraid. We read in Acts 18, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. And then in the last book, in the New Testament, in Revelation 1, John said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. We live in an age in which there seems to be so much to fear. And the question we need to ask ourselves, and I hope we will answer in the weeks to come, is how are we as God's people to obey the most repeated command found in scripture? Do not be afraid. How are we to be followers of Jesus in a culture of fear? It is my hope and prayer that we will, what we will be examining in this series will point us in the right direction We will discern how we are to do what Jesus tells us, that we will not be afraid. I think in order to do this, I think it's important for us to ask and answer the question, how did we get to where we are? That is, living in a culture of fear. Well, first of all, perhaps you might need some convincing that, in fact, we do live in a culture of fear. Consider the following. We have an election coming up this Tuesday, and one of the propositions is Proposition A, which seeks to add a half-cent sales tax so that they can hire more policemen and women and firefighters. And one of those proponents says, your safety is at risk. Therefore, you need to vote for Proposition A. A few months ago, I think in November, the CDC announced that there are now there's now a new family of bacteria resistant or I'm sorry, antibiotic resistant bacteria, and they don't know what to do about these things. Last week, I think it was, you may have heard on the news that there was there were reports of a TB outbreak in Skid Row in Los Angeles and that it was drug resistant. They've now actually determined that the rate of tuberculosis infection has gone down the last few years and it is not drug resistant. And what about the big national fear about sequestration? Both sides seeking to create fear. Uh, The one, though, that I've chosen to mention is a particular congressperson who announced that if this went through, and it has, we're still here, uh, but if it went through, 170 million jobs would be lost which is quite remarkable because the Bureau of Labor Statistics said that there are only 140 million jobs in this country. So we would actually lose more jobs than we actually have. Or consider an article by Newsweek. This is some years ago. The headline, that little freckle could be a time bomb. Or a local news anchor leading into a story, drinking too much water could send you to the emergency room. One of the things that's interesting, one of the net results of all this, is that oftentimes our fears do not correspond to actual risk or actual danger. In 2002, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, listed the top three causes of death in the United States as heart disease, cancer, and stroke. And yet, I don't think that these are necessarily what people are afraid of. People are afraid of terrorism and pedophiles, road raids, school shootings, plane crashes, killer bees. Serial killers, new addictions, including the shopping addiction and Internet addiction, new medical and uh, psychological conditions, mad cow disease, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, West Nile, SARS, avian flu, Ebola, and the list goes on and on. There's so much to fear. And yet we are told by our Lord and Savior, do not be afraid. How did we get to where we are today? living in a culture of fear. Let me suggest three roots that we should consider. First of all, the biblical roots of fear. The appearance of fear in the world is found in the story of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, placed in the Garden of Eden so that they might learn lessons necessary. They need to learn skills so that they could then go out and do as God had commanded, to have dominion over the planet. These lessons included trust and obedience, Adam and Eve were then confronted with a test. What we find in the story is that they were much as we are. They were unwilling to be creatures. They were seeking to declare themselves self-created. And so they disobeyed. Human beings were created for life in community. This mirrors the nature of God. Three persons, one God. There is, if you wish, a divine community. We were made to image God, and we are to live and love one another in the pattern of God's living and loving. But the first two humans and their descendants were not content with this distinctly creature status. The privilege, the task, of pointing beyond ourselves, of reflecting the image of God, apparently is not enough for human beings. Instead, they liked what they heard from the serpent, you will be like God. Now, if you think about it, the difference between being made in the image of God and being like God may simply seem to be a semantics, like a matter of linguistic difference. And in fact, the difference is vast. On the one hand, to reflect the goodness and beauty of God. On the other hand, to turn inward and to see ourselves as the source of goodness and beauty. Instead of reflecting the light of God, human beings believe themselves to be the source of light. And the result being that we become unending self-creators, remaking ourselves. We become a God to ourselves. As I've done for the past few series, I've been inspired and instructed by books that have come out. And Scott Bader Sayer has a book called Following Jesus in a Culture of Fear. And I found this to be tremendously helpful. He mentions that it was when the first humans sought to be self-creators that they knew fear. And they hid or tried to hide from God. It is when human beings try to stand on their own that part of that package deal comes fear. After they'd eaten the forbidden fruit, God came into the garden. They heard him. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Adam and Eve were afraid. Just as they were ashamed when they first ate and they made themselves coverings, now they are naked, they are laid bare. They are transparent to each other and to God. And this should not, in a perfect world, cause fear. But they had gone beyond the boundaries. They had transgressed what God had told them to do. And since they no longer have boundaries... They lose a sense of security, and the result is they have fear. The boundaries of their bodies, if you wish, are no longer secure, and they are afraid. The dynamics had changed. No longer content to rest in the givenness of God and his creation, God's created order, what he had given them. Human beings turned from being recipients of God's gifts to becoming masters and possessors, Of those gifts. Human beings now see themselves as claimants to the fruit, the knowledge, the power to determine good and evil, the power and burden to be God, and not simply to reflect God. There is, however, a serious problem. We were not made to be gods. Thus, we live with this uneasy. This uneasy truth that we cannot fulfill our aspirations. We want to be like God. We want to be God. But in fact, we cannot. And we fear failure, that we will not live up to what we want. We can only fail because we see ourselves as self-creators. We fear death because we are not content to receive life as a gift. God has given us life. But rather we see it as something we possess and death is something that we see as taking away life. And therefore we are afraid. We fear God's presence because it reminds us that we are not God. Because we are fallen creatures, fear is a deep seated part of our makeup. And thus we find throughout scripture time and time and time again, the words do not be afraid. Since the time of Adam and Eve, it has been the nature of humans to be afraid. I find it striking that the last two popes, uh, John Paul II and Pope Benedict, the first words they spoke in their first public address, they started out saying, do not be afraid. This is our nature as human beings. And so we must be told time and time again not to be afraid. But I said we live in a culture of fear. We are not the first people to be afraid, okay? Um, In many ways, what I've said thus far, I could have preached a thousand years ago. But in many ways, where we live here and now, we have unique fears. And our way of looking at the world, I think, is quite different than those who have come before us. The words of Jesus are just as true now as they were a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago. But we need to ask ourselves, what is the culture, what is the climate of fear that surrounds us as we seek to follow Jesus and not be afraid? What I want to do now is trace the roots of fear as we face it today in two particular aspects. The political roots of fear, because I will argue that modern political theories rely on fear, that fear is the foundation of community in the modern world and then the cultural roots of fear. We have lost the sense that the story has a happy ending, and therefore people are afraid. You know I teach history and so I enjoy doing a history lesson, so if you'll bear with me. The type of government we have today actually had its roots at the end of the 16th and beginning of the 17th century, when European nations were beginning to organize themselves as nation states, as separate political entities. The Holy Roman Empire had fallen apart, and so we begin to find these entities that emerge. And in contrast to what had come before them, in which the church had great power um, and people had a common system of belief, suddenly you have all these entities in which people are trying to find something that will hold them together. And so they are not based on a common faith or a common vision of what is good, but rather on the idea of justice and individual freedom. You see, because as long as you're part of the Holy Roman Empire, you live in the medieval period, there is something that everyone holds in common. But now as you break apart into these little segments, What is it going to be that you can say, come on, folks, this is what we hold in common, because if I hold in common the same thing as the people in the next entity, why don't we just join together? And so each of these nation states began to have its own definition of justice and individual freedoms. What emerged out of this social change was a system in which people agreed to disagree about the big questions of life. What is truth? What is goodness? People said, we don't have to agree in order for us to be together. We'll just agree to disagree. Now, prior to this, there had been fear and fear had been a political tool. Uh, People were afraid of the emperor or the prince or the feudal lord. They were also afraid of the church and what the church could do, like excommunication. But now, Fear had changed. It used to be that people were afraid of tyrants. They were afraid of people in power. With the rise of the modern nation state, people are now afraid of anarchy. They're afraid of chaos. Because as things break apart, how do you know they're not going to keep segmenting and keep breaking apart? And so the fear of anarchy is what drives many people. You see, because people... We're trying to create political communities that did not share a common belief, a common religious belief, the only thing they held in common was a belief in individual freedom, people could not assume that they agreed on the big questions of life. And if people cannot be united, and we saw this in the last series on calling, that it is for the common good, if people cannot agree on what the common good is, then what can they agree on? What they can agree on is what they are to be afraid of, what they are to avoid. The glue that holds the modern nation state together is fear. Thomas Hobbes wrote about this, and he imagined that human beings out of fear and self-interest decided, I will give up the the right to use violence so that I can live in community. But in order to do this, there had to be something that we, together, would be afraid of. So we won't fight each other because we will join in common cause together to fight against something else. So for him, politics did not exist to organize people for the common good, but to protect people not only from outsiders, but from insiders. Politics does not exist, as he saw it, to organize people to pursue a common good, but to protect us from each other. For him, the primary threat, interestingly enough, was not from outside, but the anarchy within the community. He argued that the basis for any society in the modern world is our mutual fear of each other. Now, the systems of government that have emerged since Hobbes' time are not exactly as he imagined them. But fear is still a major component in their makeup. Two, little, two leading political theorists, first is Judith Sklar, who was a, a professor at Harvard. She wrote a famous paper in 1989 called The Liberalism of Fear. And she argued that what we have in the United States today and in most democracies in the world is not an offering of, for our Latin scholars, the somum bonum, the greatest good. That is, we're all working together in this country toward the greatest good. But rather, it begins with a somum malum, the greatest evil, which all of us know, which we will avoid, and we will work together to avoid this greatest evil. It is worth noting that she had a very... Uh, difficult childhood in her early life. She was Jewish. She was born in Latvia and had to escape at uh, Sweden to escape first the Soviets and then the Nazis um, and then ended up in Canada as a refugee. So this obviously colored her view, but what is the greatest evil? Well, for her, the greatest evil was cruelty. And she argued that this is probably the most that we can all agree on. That we in this country can agree that cruelty is wrong and so we're all going to stand shoulder to shoulder and we are going to stand against cruelty. Well, someone who was born much later than her, a man named Corey Rubin, uh, born in 67, he teaches at Brooklyn College. He argues not from her background, which was a fear of what Nazism had done to the Jewish community, but he argues from a post 9-11 perspective. And he argues that fear is not sufficient. That if we embrace fear as that which holds us together, um, we will not be able to deal with the things that we are afraid of. Let me read to you what he wrote. Convinced that we lack moral or, prin- or political principles to bind us together, we savor the experience of being afraid. That's an astounding statement. You know, Since we lack principles that hold us together, we, we savor, we enjoy being afraid as many writers did after 9-11, for only fear we believe can turn us from isolated men and women into a unified people. Looking to political fear as the ground of our public life, we refuse to see the grievances and controversies that underlie it. We bind ourselves to the real world conflicts that make fear an instrument of political rule and advance, deny ourselves the tools that might mitigate those conflicts, and ultimately ensure that we stay enthralled to fear. As a people, we never feel as focused, as unified, as when we have a common enemy, when we have a common fear. And I think politicians are all too aware of this. They certainly seem more aware of it, I think, than the general public. Have you ever noticed come election time, suddenly we are told there are so many things we need to be afraid of. And whether you are from the right or the left, there are still things to be afraid of. That which you're afraid of depends on your affiliation. And the political posturing begins. And now, I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems that campaigns don't begin before the election. They seem to go all cycle long. We never seem to have a respite from these campaigning, these campaigns. And what these campaigns do is they try to galvanize a certain contingency and say... There is something you need to be afraid of. They're going to destroy America. You need to vote for me so I can get into office and we can stop this great evil that threatens us. I think both the left and the right are guilty of doing this. But Robin says that this is not sufficient. That this, in fact, cannot be a foundation. Our country cannot stand on a foundation of fear. Unfortunately, I I think he doesn't really have any alternative. He talks about justice and freedom and equality. But whose account of justice and whose definition of freedom and whose vision of equality? The very reason that fear has become an important political foundation in our world was that we lost a common worldview that was held in the Middle Ages. People believe the same thing, and they no longer do. And so we—what what is it that we might have in common, and fear becomes that thing. It is so basic to what it means to be a human being. Although it might seem that Sklar and Robin disagree, in fact, I think they point in the right direction. Robin is right that fear as a political foundation is ultimately threatening. No good can come from it. Sklar is also right that shared fear is the only pragmatic foundation because if people do not have beliefs in common, then they must find something they have in common, and that becomes fear. As God's people here in 2013, we must understand what has happened, where we are today, and realize that the way to overcome Fear-based politics is not to come up with a better political theory, but a better theology. To hear the words of Jesus, do not be afraid. What about the cultural roots of fear? As Bader Say puts it, losing the big story, no more happy endings. Our world is even more fragmented than Hobbes could have imagined In our country, we can presume to hold very few beliefs in common, convictions, stories, practices. And so it seems that fear is the only way to keep us united, to create unity. In part, because we do not have a shared story. And this is a fairly recent thing that... Uh, for years, as immigrants would come into this country, they would, in a sense, join the American story. They would be part of the American dream, the American story. But in the last several decades, this has begun to come unraveled. And now the story that we share is fear. Because we don't have any other story that we can share, any other account of goods or goals. This is what it means to be an American. We have reached a point almost where we could say to be afraid is what it means to be an American. That we lack a common political story that can bind us together is an indication of some really significant cultural shifts. Fewer and fewer people today, and as someone who teaches history, I find this very disturbing, But fewer and fewer people today believe that history represents a coherent narrative, that there is a story, that it makes sense, that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Part of the reason that they do this is because if there is a coherence, if there is a story, then there must be an author, whether it be God, for those who have religious convictions, or humankind, for those who are humanists, or nature, for those who look to creation for a story. But now many people believe that, that somehow the fact that I'm part of a larger story just doesn't seem plausible. It doesn't seem to make sense anymore. And so in the academy... There are those who believe that history is merely a tool of those who are in positions of power, and they have told the story in a particular way so that they can manipulate and control the population. People tell stories of history that will bolster their claim to say, I should be in charge and you should follow me. People despair of finding a thread that will unify their lives. And instead, their lives are experienced in many ways as a music video. That is to say, a somewhat random chain of events that have no necessary connection to what went before, what comes after. You see, prior to modernity, people did believe there was a story. They believed that the world had an author. History was seen as God's story. And while humans were were capable of really doing damage, Ultimately, God was still the guide. He was the one who was able to direct creation to a good end. At times, we might not quite understand what the plot line was. We couldn't understand what God was doing at a particular point. But we never thought it didn't have a good end. People could trust history because they trusted that the God who had created the world would finally reconcile all things. Minority challenged this belief, but not as you might imagine. They simply said, yes, it's a good end, but without a storyteller. In the 17th and 18th century, you find suddenly an upsurge of optimism and a trust in human progress. Advances in science and medicine Advances in science and medicine allowed us to tame certain diseases and natural threats. Advances in technology made work easier. Much more leisure time is available. And so into the 19th century, the narrative of human progress is what people held to. I don't know if you've ever done this, but read some of the literature of the 19th century and there's this amazing optimism that... I find striking because I I personally wouldn't want to live in the 19th century. Um, I haven't been born in the 20th. I'm quite content with that. And yet there was this amazing optimism among people, even among people you might not suspect, like Karl Marx. He provided an economic narrative of social progress that moved inevitably toward the formation of a good and just society. He believed there would be a happy ending. Charles Darwin gave us a biological narrative of human development that suggested a continual evolution and growth toward perfection in the human race. Certainly a happy ending. You see, they had abandoned God and the theological framework, that God is the storyteller, that God is in control of history. And now Mark speaks of a certain inevitability. And we hear in Darwin this sense of evolution as things are moving toward perfection. However, as we come into the 20th century, this became harder and harder to believe. The idea that the story was going to have a happy ending. Let me just read you some statistics. In World War I, 15 million people were killed. In the Russian Civil War, which ended in 1922, 9 million people were killed. Russia under Stalin over 20 million people were killed. In World War II, 66 million people were killed. In the Great Leap Forward in China from 1958 to 1962, 36 million Chinese starved to death. In the killing fields of Cambodia, one quarter of the population was killed. And then we have the genocides of Bosnia and Rwanda. There's a great irony that when the 20th century began, it was called by journalists the Christian century. It turned out to be the deadliest century ever. And the result was not simply an uncertainty about whether or not there was going to be a happy ending. That certainly people had lost. But then people began to wonder if there was a story at all. If our lives made any sense, if there was any coherence at all. So they viewed their lives as a series of loosely connected singularities I have in parenthesis here, like the rapidly juxtaposed and largely disconnected images in a music video. That's how people see their lives. People still have not embraced God. They're still secular. But they've lost the optimism. They've lost the optimism. And so there's no longer a story. And if there is no story then there is no happy ending. Then more than that, if there is no story, there is no subject. And suddenly to be a human being in 2013, people wonder what's going on. If there is no story, what is my place here? Why am I here? What is the significance of my life? Without the stability and coherence of a story, who are we? Modernity tells us that we can be whoever we want. We can recreate ourselves, like the serpent told Eve. You can be a self-creator. You can be like God. But if you're always recreating yourself, who are you? What is your identity? One Christian writer puts it this way. Without history, we become unscripted, anxious stutterers in our actions as in our words. And in such a nihilistic world, fear may be the only thing people can fear, that they can feel. It's the one thing that tells them they are alive. They feel fear. And it's not merely the fear of loss or the fear of death. There's also the fear of rejection, the fear of failure. Consider advertising and their strategies, how they target individuals. They put up unrealistic images and they suggest that the reader or the viewer does not match those images. But they offer a product that will relieve your fear of inadequacy. Buy this product or you'll be a loser. Buy this product or you'll just be ordinary. Buy this product or you will be rejected. We live in a culture of fear. But in truth, our world is no more dangerous than it was 50 years ago, or 100 years ago, or 1,000 years ago. In general, we are living longer, healthier lives than in the past. Many diseases have been diminished or eradicated. Youth violence is not new, though the news may tell us differently. Dangerous travel is not new. As some of you know, fearing is not one of my favorite things to do. Consider it a dangerous proposition. But I remember reading that in the early part of the 20th century, the average number of railroad fatalities in this country was over 6,000 annually. It wasn't any safer back then than it is. Now, our present dangers today are pretty much constant dangers. And yet, in many ways, we've imagined ourselves to be even more threatened than those in the past. And part of the reason for this fear is that people have incentives to heighten, to manipulate, and to exploit our fears. Politicians, advertisers... Media executives, advocacy groups, and even the church, God forgive us, has turned to fear to support their message. Bader Sayer calls it the fear for profit syndrome. We become preoccupied with unlikely dangers that take on the status of imminent dangers. These things are going to destroy us. And if we are not careful, we will allow fear to determine our actions. If we are followers of Jesus, then we must take his words seriously. Do not be afraid. By God's grace, I hope in this series that we will gain a clear perspective on fear. How to acknowledge it without being manipulated by it. How to resist it without assuming that we should be fearless. That should be interesting. And how to receive it as a gift, if indeed it can be a gift, without letting it dominate our lives. Following Jesus may involve us in risky, dare I say, dangerous practices. Do you remember the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25? Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Truly I tell you whatever you did for one of these, the least, these brothers and sisters of mine, You did for me. Imagine yourself in the first century. Visiting someone in prison could be a very fearful activity. They were not the cleanest places to be. Inviting someone into your house can be a fearful proposition. Sharing what you have when perhaps you do not have enough can also create fear. The question we need to ask ourselves is, will we be fearful? Or will we trust God? Will we believe that he is the creator and we are not? Or will we, like our father and mother, Adam and Eve, and so many around us, hold to the notion that we are in charge? If you take that road, then fear comes with it. It's a package deal. You cannot be autonomous without being fearful. It's just not possible. If I'm not to be afraid, then I'm not to be autonomous. I'm to acknowledge that what I have comes as a gift from God. And I pray by God's grace in the weeks to come we will see this. Let's pray together. Father every Sunday as we begin our worship we sing responsibly I will not fear and yet we live in a culture of fear in which those around us seek to manipulate the fears we may have of possible dangers, of possible threats we are your people in this place at this time you put us here And like your people of all places and all time, we are called to obey your command to not be afraid. Because of sin, fear is always with us. But you've called us to recreate us. You who created us seek to recreate us in the image of your Son. May we, by your grace, be people who are not afraid. Father, now that we know how we got here, may we, in the weeks to come, see how we might, by your grace, obey your command and be people that are marked by trust and not fear. And in a world marked by fear, by your grace, may we be people marked by faith. We pray today for Stephen, we are proud of his accomplishment, having won this competition. And now as he performs, pray that you would give him what he needs. He's practiced. He has knowledge and skill. May you give him peace as he plays. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.